This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Have you ever thought about recording your own podcast? I know it took me a long time to get around to it, mostly because I was worried about the how-to, the equipment I might need, the editing that needed to be done. Well, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. They have all sorts of creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone and computer. That great music you hear on my podcast is from Anchor. It was provided to me for free. I, I select it and add it to the podcast. I'm done. I've also been able to edit my podcast. They have easy features that make it smooth and pain-free to cut and remove certain parts of your podcast if you need to take them out or just add things. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard in places like Spotify and Apple, and you can even connect up other places like Stitcher. That's what I did. You can also make money off of your podcast. They give you a way to connect with sponsors it's really everything you need, and it's particularly great for people who are worried about the technical side of making a podcast. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a new podcast called Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Borkowski. I am looking forward to getting to know my audience and share a little bit about what I know and read and experience with respect to belonging. That is going to be the theme of this podcast, although we will probably travel into a variety of topics related to belonging, but possibly different as well. I'm hoping the structure of the podcast will include a brief introduction. Um, I have come recently into really valuing and and actually getting a chance to learn how to, to tell a, a good story. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to share. And as I interview individuals, they will also be able to share some of their own stories um, to give you some insight into our lived experiences with respect to topics of belonging and those related to belonging. Additionally, I hope to unpack those stories, sort of peel back that proverbial onion um, to think about what are the takeaways, what are the lessons, what are the things we might want to be contemplating as we reflect on those stories and talk to the folks who are sharing those stories. Um, I am a research methodologist by training. Um, I am a professor. I teach statistics and data analysis. So I don't think I could do a podcast without including at least a little bit of a research recap. So as we listen and unpack those stories, I'm going to try um, most often to include some kind of literature, whether it's from 
what we often call the gray literature. So foundation and research institutes, government reports, and then sort of the more traditional academic literature, the uh, journal articles and such. So I'll try to bring an article, just do a brief recap and hopefully connect it to whatever we're talking about this week. Um, and the final thing will be uh, a closing thought with respect to small steps. Um, what are what are things that we can be doing in our day-to-day lives to enact or consider some of the takeaways and stories that we're sharing on this podcast? So um, I will be really honest with you because that's sort of um, how I try to live. Um, and that is it took me about four takes to do this intro. Um, it's also the second take of the first podcast. And I think as I reflected on what I did yesterday, I recognized that, um, you know, the goal here isn't perfection. The goal here isn't to go mistake free in a recording, if you will. Um, this and I am a work in progress. And so what that means is, I know that I'm going to continue to learn as I do these, and I'm hopeful that, you know, if I'm lucky enough to make it to, I don't know, episode 10 or, heck, episode 2 for that matter, that each time I listen and do these podcasts and hear from my audience, I will learn something new um, that will hopefully make the podcast better, um, or at least it'll help it to grow and change um, as necessary. So please... Um, take a moment to send me an email, um, give me some feedback, your ideas, your thoughts. I know there are lots of people that do great podcasts. I listen to a lot of them myself. So I want to learn from all of you out there as well. So, all right, so let's go ahead and get started. So the story for the 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 introductory podcast, uh, episode, if you will, is it's about my grandparents. And I think the reason, well, I know the reason I have chosen this first story is because to be quite honest, I think they are not the only reason, but certainly a driving reason for me finally starting this podcast. I've been wanting to do podcasts for a long time. In my courses, I do short audio podcasts or audio recordings and messages with my students. And I never quite, um, I don't know, had the courage, I guess is the best way to put it, to take that leap into the podcast world. And and unfortunately, my 96-year-old grandmother passed away um, this past November. Um, I was incredibly close to her, um, and I feel incredibly grateful that I was able to spend so much time with her and that she was with me for so much of my childhood and my adult life. And as I sat with her and then was asked and had the privilege to share uh, my own feelings about her um, in her obituary, as I was trying to figure out what in the world I could possibly write that would, you know, effectively or accurately represent this amazing woman in her life, I came to realize that my grandmother, and I don't think she would describe herself this way because she was an incredibly humble um, woman, but I really do think she was my first example of a teacher. And going along with that, I don't just mean she was teaching me lessons or showing me how to do things. Of course, that was true. I mean, she taught me lots of lessons, life lessons and practical lessons and gave lots of great advice. But when it really comes down to it, what I remember most about really my grandparents, um, my grandfather passed away a few years before my grandmother, is their ability to make anyone in the room feel welcome. 
Um, and I'm going to call it belonging. They really knew how to cultivate a sense of belonging. I don't think my grandmother would use that word. She just, it was just sort of the downy way, if you will. Um, that's, that was their last name. Um, but really, you know, my family, our extended family, we grew up in a middle-class, um, pretty homogeneous area. Um, and I would, I would say, I mean, we had our differences within the family, but for the most part, we were pretty similar. Um, but as the family grew up, but also grew in numbers. So as my cousins, um, and my mom's siblings continue to have kids and we had kids, um, you know, you inevitably go out into the world and you meet lots of really interesting people and that brings diversity into the family. So at the end of the day, even though we came from a relatively, um, homogeneous area, middle-class area, and were ourselves pretty homogeneous, we ended up as a family that was actually quite diverse. Um, you know, we have, um, uh, family members from, um, different parts of the world who have been brought into the family through adoptions. Um, we have families that include people of color, of different religions, uh, sexual orientation. I myself am in a same-sex couple. And and all is it, all of this is to say that regardless of who we were or are or how we identify, my grandparents loved us and were interested in each person in our family. Um, and they valued us. They genuinely authentically valued us. Um, and I point this out because, you know, if we think about my grandparents and I'm sure many of you out there have, um, you know, either grandparents or great grandparents or parents, or even just people that, you know, um, who were a part of that time, you know, they, they were born in the twenties. And so my grandmother was born just as women earned the right to vote. Of course, this was well before anything with respect to the Civil Rights Act. Um, and certainly there was a lot of turmoil, um, you know, in that time. And so to me, it's it's remarkable and really just a testament to, to who they are um, that they sort of just, you know, you, they took you for, they took you for who you are and they really leaned in and want to, and wanted to listen and learn. And I can always remember whether it was sitting with my grandmother and having a conversation, talking with her on the phone or in her later years, she got really interested in email because she always loved to type letters. So corresponding by email, I remember as I would share something or if I was a part of a conversation where somebody else was sharing something, my grandmother's sort of, sort of line or response you know, you could see sort of the wheels turning was, tell me this, Carrie, or tell me something, Carrie. And to me, again, this is my interpretation. To me, those words were so important because to me, it noted that she was actively engaging and listening to the conversation, wasn't preparing her response to me, but was actually thinking about how could I learn more about this? I'm really interested. I'm going to lean into this and really listen carefully to what this individual has to say. The other thing that I noticed about my grandparents is they never met a stranger, never for sure. Um, and when, when my grandmother, I always remember when my grandmother would meet someone, of course she would sort of, you know, put that hand out to shake their hand. But as she would put that hand out, she, 
and the other person would, you know, reach out to also shake. She would then take her other hand and put it over that person's hand. And she would almost always say something to the effect of, so good to know you. Um, it's good to meet you, or I'm glad to know you. You know, she, she just really wanted that individual to have her attention, to have that connection and to attend to and acknowledge that she was really joyful and happy about now having this new person in her, in her life. Um, and so I think those two small um, gestures of my grandmother to me really do represent this idea of belonging, of valuing, seeing the contribution of another person, valuing that contribution and leaning in to really get to know that person. Um, the last part of the story that I wanted to share, um, because I spent so much time with my grandparents in this sort of context is my grandparents learned how to play golf when they were in their seventies. Um, which, you know, as an educator, I just, I just love that. I love that story. Um, I was fortunate enough um, as a kid, I learned how to play golf at a young age. And so my grandparents being able to play golf was actually pretty cool because, I mean, how many kids get to play a sport with their 70-year-old grandparents? So, you know, all through my life, um, I mean, I can even remember as a college student going down to Florida and spending my spring, spring break, not in Daytona or Miami, but at their retirement retirement place, um, playing golf with my grandparents. And the thing that I remember about, about playing with them the most, and I think other folks who have played with my, my grandparents would remember the same thing is once again, my grandmother in particular always really looked for the positive in a situation. So if I stepped up to the first tee, you know, to hit that first shot of the day, uh, swing that golf club, hit that ball and, all of a sudden it, you know, veers off to the right or to the left or ends up in a, a little, you know, hole or just a not, just a not really good spot for the next shot. My grandma's, my grandmother's reply most often was something along the lines of, oh, that was such a beautiful shot. If only it hadn't gone to the right or, oh, that was so pretty. I'm so sorry. It ended up behind a tree. Now, for some people, it might feel like a backhanded, like, you know, criticism, right? Like, oh, that would have been good except for X. But I like to believe, and and knowing my grandmother the way I knew her, um, I really do think she was always trying to find the positive in a situation. She wanted to point out your assets. She wanted you to know that she was paying attention and that she always could could you know, find something good in, in what you did. And so, um, you know, I have so many wonderful memories of my grandparents and, and those are just a few that I wanted to share to kick off the podcast. And I hope from hearing that those sort of mini stories, if you will, you can see how, um, those two amazing people, um, in particular, my grandmother. And, and I should say, um, just, you know, in my grandfather's defense, I'm talking more about my grandmother because to be honest, she had the gift of gab. She was the the talker of the two of them. So um, many of my sort of conversation memories are, are with my grandmother. But I hope that you can see that, um, you know, she really did see me and she saw each of us in our family. She saw each individual who 
um, you know, who entered or came into her life. And she really um, just naturally was a good listener, um, had gratitude um, for the other person and their contributions. And those really, really are the lessons or the takeaways that, that I wanted to share um, with respect to belonging, because when you think about cultivating an environment or a community of belonging, these are features or elements that you really need to enact in order to even establish an environment that could facilitate any sort of belonging. Um, this ability to really lean in um, and listen, to not feel the need to jump into the conversation, to express some gratitude for another person's perspective and opinion, um, you know, knowledge that they bring, the experience that they share, um, saying it's, it's so good to know you or it's so good to meet you is really just um, a, a small step towards establishing a sense of belonging. And the other piece, of course, at least uh, for now in this in this episode, is acknowledging, attending to, really bringing voice to the contributions of others. Um, and I think this is applicable across a lot of contexts. As I said earlier, I'm an educator. And so when I think about giving students feedback, whether in a meeting or on a paper, you know, finding something that they did well, noting that they this was a really good sentence or this was a really great idea that you brought to this paper or thank you so much for your participation in this discussion. It really does help to lay the groundwork to have you know, those eventual more difficult conversations where some learning is involved and some development. And I hope that you can see also in a, a professional setting, in an office, um, certainly with your colleagues working on a project um, or some effort proposal that you have going on, whether you're the leader um, or you're, or uh, a colleague working alongside each other, certainly recognizing the contributions of each other um, can go a long way to when you get into the sort of challenges of, of your workplace. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit, but still related. And as I said, I wanted to share a research recap. Um, I had the privilege of working on a paper with a couple of colleagues over this last month, and I came across this great article. Um, it was written by uh, Mark Warren, Sojin Park, and Mara or Mara Teakin. And this was published in the Harvard Education Review summer 2016. So it's a couple years old, but certainly still relevant. And these authors wrote about this idea of community-engaged scholars. And they, in particular, were describing a program at the Harvard um, School of Education where they were collaboratively um, training, doctor or do training doctoral students in education research. And so the article really reminds us that typically doctoral students are trained in arguably what you may refer to as traditional sort of approaches to research. So this would mean reviewing research methodologies like quantitative, qualitative, and mixed method, um, certainly learning all of the steps of that methodology, data collection, data analysis, and then practicing those skills, right? So there's a particular set of knowledge, skills, and disposition that traditionally happens in doctoral programs. Well, there's a, there's, there's a, a body of literature 
that's been exploring, you know, why is it so challenging for public, um, sorry, for higher education institutions to engage in sort of the public mission of higher ed, right? So to, we have all this knowledge and all this skill sitting in, in sort of these, right, the quote unquote ivory tower. And how do we effectively engage with our communities? Um, too often, traditionally, it's a very top-down approach to things. Um, and the, the sort of saying is sort of doing research on and instead of with the community. And so this article really explores a pilot program at Harvard School, School of Education where two faculty and about 15 doctoral students engaged in a collaborative project. Um, and in that project in particular, they explored um, topics around um, community organizing with respect to particular education issues in the community. Now, the cool thing about this, or there were lots of cool things about this, this article, but the really cool thing about this article is that these authors contend that there's a set of dispositions particular to what they refer to as community-engaged scholarship. And when they say community-engaged scholarship, they really are talking about research endeavors, research publications that happen with the community as opposed to on or about the community. And so they contend that doctoral students really need to learn, in addition to those traditional skills, they need to learn a set of competencies that might include things like um, bringing your whole selves, your authentic selves to the entire proce process and the project. Um, recognizing and attending to your positionality, which refers to where do you sit in sort of the, the scheme of things with respect to the, the participants in the research? You know, where, where is the privilege and what is the power and what are those implications for doing research? What is your perspective that you bring? They also teach students to value different sources of data. And so this refers to thinking about the importance of lived experiences, of people's professional experiences, people's contexts, um, in addition to the more traditional data sources like, you know, collecting quantitative data or doing a formal interview with someone. And finally, um, well, there's m multiple things, but two others that I wanted to point out. They call um, this other skill or disposition, this idea of cr um, facilitating or cultivating horizontal relationships. So remember I said the research pro process is often um, top down. And so what they attempt to do is create not a hierarchy, but to flatten that hierarchy. So it really is a collaborative approach so that at every stage of the research process, it's not the researcher, the institution, the funder making all these decisions. It really is inclusive of the participants, whether it's families, teachers, a community, um, engaging in the research process. And lastly, being really intentional about identifying an a community-engaged scholar identity. Um, and, and that's really important because, you know, 
this will not just happen overnight. This just does not just happen matter of factly or as a consequence of some other action that you take. This will not happen in a traditional research methods class, at least not to most students. Um, You have to, just like you set your course objectives, you also have to include these goals and values um, within your courses, within your organization, if you want these things to happen. Um, The reason I bring this up is they found that students really appreciated this approach. They really, I don't know if they desperately wanted, um, but they really did want to develop this identity, but without this experience, what they called a critical experience, um, which means really, you know, a full-blown project with the community, not just sort of a a one-time module or week in a research methods course. They really did want to develop these skills because doctoral students coming into programs now recognize the value and the necessity of developing these kinds of dispositions. Um, The researchers themselves also found that they really appreciated the work because they themselves value community-engaged scholarship and really wanted to create a space for themselves professionally, but also within the literature to explore this topic um, more deeply. Um, Why do I bring this article to this particular episode? Well, I hope that you can see there actually are some connections between the way in which my grandmother walked through the world and community-engaged scholarship. So if we think back to this idea of actively listening, um, you know, the researchers acknowledging that students need this disposition to value um, diverse perspectives and to create um, horizontal relationships. This can't really happen without honing and practicing your listening skills. Um, I also think expressing gratitude and finding the assets and the contributions of others, as I shared with you with respect to my grandparents, this is spot on um, and part of the disposition of a community-engaged scholar. Again, really appreciating, valuing, and integrating the lived experiences of the community participants, not just their singular perspective or assumptions that they bring to the table about a community um, or a group of participants in a research study. So I really enjoyed that article. I would encourage you to take a look at it if you have a chance. It's Warren, Park, and Teakin, um, the Harvard Education Review 2016, Formation of Community-Engaged Scholars, a Collaborative Approach to Doctoral Training and Education Research. Because quite frankly, as I, I've read this article a couple of times and I've, I've shared it with, you know, my students and who actually, whom, you know, whomever would listen to me. Um, and, and, and the more I read it and the more I talk about it, yes, this article in particular is in the context of a graduate school of education with doctoral students, but the ideas around community-engaged scholarship really do have relevance in other settings. I mean, creating horizontal relationships, examining your own positionality and your power and privilege, um, recognizing and valuing multiple data sources. Um, Think about if we were able to adopt those dispositions in our, our workplace, in our, you know, schools, in our organizations, in our neighborhoods, wherever, um, think about the sort of headway we can make and the kinds of conversations we could have 
um, as a community. So I, again, even if you're not an academic, you're not a teacher, or you're a teacher but not working with graduate students, I still think this article has relevance um, across a lot of contexts. So I would really urge you um, to take a look at it. Well, I want to thank you so much for listening to episode one of Tell Me This. Um, I did have just one closing thought as I, I shared with you at the beginning or the introduction of the podcast that we would try to think about small steps we could take in our lives, um, perhaps to enact something that was discussed in this podcast. And again, in the interest of full disclosure, I um, love to exercise. I love to stay fit, whether it's running around outside with my kids or formally training for whatever race is on the calendar. I do like to get things on the calendar. I do like to have a plan of action um, and a goal, you know, at, at the end of that that uh, calendar, whether it's, you know, a race in the spring or doing something in the summer. And so I think in the spirit of that, I was, I wanted to encourage you also to devise a plan for these small steps. And so today what I'd love for you to think about is this idea of, of leaning in. Um, uh, Brene Brown likes to remind us that it's really hard to dislike someone if you're able to lean in and listen to their story. And so just as I shared with you a few stories of my grandparents, I hope that you recognize and remember that as we tell our stories to each other, um, and as we hear those stories from each other, we learn just a little bit more about maybe what makes us feel the way we do, what makes us think or act the way we do. And so what I'm asking you to do this week um, or in the next few days in terms of small steps is to notice how you engage and how you lean in with, with folks around you. And that needs to or should include the folks that are how can I characterize it? Those folks that are easy for you to be around, maybe it means the people that you share political views, your views on, you know, what's going on in the schools or your views on the environment or economics, you know, pick any sort of topic that sometimes gets us gets us going. But also I need you to notice and pay attention to how you engage with and how you lean in or don't lean in with folks who are a little bit harder for you to be around. And when I say harder, I'm, I'm typically referring to, or, or it's probably or most likely the views that you share or don't share. And so if you have, you know, let, let's be honest. Um, there's a lot of divisiveness in our country right now and really around the world with respect to the U S and it's unfortunately falling on political lines most often. And so I'm asking you to attend to, and notice how you um, how you walk with or don't walk with folks of different opinions, different perspectives. And so I'm encouraging you to not only notice how you engage with those folks, um, you know, what are the differences? What is what are the what does it look like when you lean in or are with folks of similar views or, or individuals that we're calling that are sort of easier to be with versus others that challenge you or are just more difficult or maybe frustrate you more quickly. What are the differences in how you sort of um, 
are with them. Um, do you value everyone that you're with or that you encounter? And if you don't, are you dismissing a particular person or, or just dismissing a particular viewpoint? And what does that look like? And I guess the other piece is if you're dismissing someone, do you know why and what are your assumptions about that person? And is there a way for you to sort of check in on those assumptions? So the last thing I want to say about this small step challenge is when I say to examine how you how you are with uh, with folks um, those who disagree and agree with you, I also acknowledge that y- you have a right to be treated respectfully and with dignity. And so when you lean in with someone, particularly someone who doesn't agree with you. This doesn't mean that you, you know, take the criticism or the grief or the personal attacks. Um, you, no one deserves that. And so I'm only asking that we lean in safely um, and what feels comfortable um, from that sort of standpoint. But, but just, you know, just this week, notice how you engage with folks, those folks that you tend to agree with, but also those folks that you tend not to agree with. And is it different? And again, um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast. I really hope that I'm able to contribute something into the universe that's positive um, and to really honor my grandparents and my grandmother's memory by talking about and um, hopefully cultivating belonging um, in our lives together. And so if you have feedback, if you have questions, if you have topics that you want to cover, if you want to come on the podcast or know folks that I should be engaging with um, on this podcast, please reach out. I would love and welcome any feedback that you have. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.